Hi, this is Ben Thompson, the author and founder of Stratechery. Welcome to a special interview edition of the Stratechery Daily Update podcast. There is a transcript of this interview in the show notes of your podcast player and on stratechery.com. Now, here's today's Daily Update. This Daily Update interview with Eugene Wei about the half-life of information was published on Thursday, March 19th, 2020. Good morning. Today's Daily Update interviews with Eugene Wei from his website, quote, Most of my professional career has been spent at consumer internet companies. The World Wide Web was just heating up when I finished my undergrad education, and like many grads from Stanford, tech was always top of mind. I started off at Amazon.com and was there for seven years working on all sorts of things, but mostly product. I left Amazon to be a filmmaker, went to editing school at the Edit Center in New York City, then to UCLA Film School in their graduate directing program. But tech pulled me back in after just one year in film school. That summer, I joined the company that would become Hulu, leading the product, design, editorial, and marketing teams. In 2011, I formed a startup called Early with a few friends. We were purchased in 2012 by Airtime, and I left that in late 2012. I was the head of product at Flipboard for two years, then the head of video at Oculus, which I left in July 2017. I'm now working on some of my own ideas, most of which sit at the intersection of media and technology, as well as doing some advising and angel investing. End quote. In this daily update interview, Wayne and I explore the idea of the half-life of information, and what that means for the value of Netflix, YouTube, Disney, and more. On to the interview. So Eugene, usually when I talk to you, uh, we are sitting at like a bar in Taipei or something along those lines. So it is, it is actually weird to talk to you uh, from a distance. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I've always wanted to say long-time listener, first-time caller. I, I finally get to do that. Yes, yes. Well, it's it's very exciting to have you on. Uh, usually these day of day podcasts been trying to keep them to around 30 minutes, which I think could very easily be a struggle for us. But um <laughs> but there's there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk to. So actually I hope we can talk a few more times. But I was yeah. um I was reflecting back. You wrote a piece a couple years ago uh that I'm sure almost everyone in all my subscribers have read uh in part because I highly endorsed it a couple times. I think you tell them go read it, which was this invisible uh, asymptotes and what was cool about it is um, I felt we had a bit of sort of a, uh, not quite a mind meld, but there was a, um, like, the great thing about talking to you, and I've known you for a few years, is, mm-hmm. you know, we have, a like, as I suggested, a capability of sort of talk for hours. And in mm-hmm. this case, it felt like that happened via text where I wrote about Amazon and this idea of the, the possible user experience approaching mm-hmm. the perfect user experience and and people think about it being an asymptote but actually yeah. it's people are always wanting more they're always wanting better so it's such a great goal to index against because mm-hmm. you'll never hit that and you basically took that idea and took it to a million and applied it to a bunch of companies which was inc- incredible one of the best articles of of the last few years thank you yeah i uh i think a lot of it just came from talking to lots of different companies who would run into these issues where, you know, every, every business eventually hits that upper shoulder of the S curve. And then just realizing, uh, you know, sometimes it takes an outside perspective to help different companies to visualize, you know, what is happening. Um, and the fact that it is invisible to them is, you know, part of the challenge of being a business person. 
Well, I, I don't want to talk about that article today, mm-hmm. though. But the reason I brought it up is we were discussing the possibility of recording. And I said, um, I, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, my time, m- Monday right. night, your time, which yeah. is before I'm going to write my article this week. And something that I, I, I'm thinking about, I want to write about is this idea of sort of the half-life of information. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about information in the context of news and social media and the mainstream media and how those roles and the value of them differ based on sort of where you are in a news cycle and where you are as far as time of a story. Obviously, very relevant right now in terms of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And what was so cool about it is I was sort of talking to you about this and you're like, oh, I've been thinking about the exact same thing, but but sort of in a different context. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's funny how that concept of half-life has so many different applications. Obviously, we're we're in the midst of this. I mean, who knows? By the time uh, this gets published on Thursday, hopefully the uh, the world still exists. Uh, things are moving pretty quickly these days. But uh, yeah, I had been thinking about it more um, in relationship to media just generally since, you know, most of a lot of my career has been spent at the intersection of technology and media. And a lot of people are, you know, focused a lot on these video streaming services now. And I do think a key to understanding the economics of those businesses is understanding the shifting nature of the half-life of relevance of this type of media. Uh, and, And obviously, the world we live in now with, you know, we've shifted from a world of sort of scarce media to a world of just nearly infinite media. And that has actually just affected the half-life of content um, across all media forms. So do you think it's lengthened it or shortened it? And and maybe we should – actually, I think a very important thing, this is part of what I was driving at, is you have to look at different types of media differently. Like for So for example, there is, there is TV, like published on TV or published or whatever the word, broadcast on TV. There is streaming services. There's YouTube. There is what's on Twitter or Facebook. So w- when you think about, so so let's say go to broadcast TV. I, I w- what was the half life of sort of a broadcast TV show? Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, a couple trends. I think generally uh, you've seen that the half life of content has shortened, and that's just partially uh, the result of the just burst of just content uh, all across all forms of media. So, you know, once when there were three network TV channels and, you know, people had to watch shows live, you just had much larger captive audiences. And so, you have all these stats that people can quote, like, you know, the finale of MASH had 80 million viewers or something like that. And, and you know, nothing comes close. So, generally, we've, we've seen over time as there's more and more media in the world, um, everything gets more competitive, uh, content gets more specialized for people's particular tastes. And so naturally, you would expect some level of fragmentation. Uh, But I think another trend that has driven a huge shift in media is just the advent of the smartphone and the internet. I often like to tell people that when I was a kid, I thought of all the different media types uh, as separated, not just by their form, but by space. That is, you know, if I wanted to play a video game, I was like, well, I would play it on my Mac in my bedroom. If I wanted to watch TV, I would watch with my family in the family room because that's where our TV was. If I was listening to music, it was often in the car with my friends because that's where the cassette tape player was. And if I was sort of watching a movie, I'd be watching it at a movie theater where they played. You know, the smartphone really just puts 
all those forms of media um, in the palm of your hand at any moment in time. And so consumers now can actually just choose what they want whenever they want. And, you know, in concept, uh, the concept in economics of substitutes, you know, really, I think we're seeing that most forms of entertainment end up not being perfect substitutes for each other, but close substitutes. And when you give everybody the choice of all these close substitutes, their preference patterns are going to shift. And so I think that's just like a broad trend that we're seeing in the world. So I'm curious, though, you, you sort of suggested that the half-life is decreasing because we only had a few broadcast networks and you had to watch it live. Mm-hmm. But, wouldn't the, but, but I guess if you think about going to cable and mm-hmm. then shows were syndicated and, and then the yeah. half-life seems to have extended, right? Because you could watch Seinfeld or, or whatever it might be for, for years on end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and wouldn't streaming services have, have extended that even further? I mean, look at all the bidding around Friends or around Seinfeld mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Isn't that a suggestion that the half-life of, of some content is actually extending? Yeah, well, in the early days of the cable proliferation, I think you were right because uh, you had a lot of cable channels who were like, well, we don't actually produce that many shows ourselves. And we have a lot of hours in the day to fill because our channel is just available throughout the day. So that was a great time for media companies uh, when they had not only DVD, physical media, which was one way to sell their content after it already aired on TV, but you had reruns and then you had syndication, you know, and you had shows like, Law and Order or, you know, Family Guy or things like that, where you didn't even need to have watched the entire series. You could just be in a hotel room, pop open uh, the television and watch any episode at any moment in time and, and just really understand what was going on. And so media companies had this great run where they were uh, able to, you know, relicense that stuff and get this like kind of annuity revenue stream. And with the internet and streaming services, I think you have some of that. Like certainly Friends has been written about as a show that's quite popular on um, uh, Netflix as sort of a, a licensed library show. But I think when I was at Hulu, one of the things I was looking at was, well, how much do people watch our library versus uh, kind of the head or new content that just airs the day after it's on television? And there was just such a heavy skew towards the head. And with the number of streaming providers now all sort of doing original production all the time and dropping stuff every week, I do think you see uh, competition for that stuff that sits in the library that you can license. And I think if you talk to a lot of TV networks that are trying to sell their old shows, they will have the occasional success like the Seinfelds or the Simpsons or Friends where they can still demand a big price, but a lot of their other stuff probably has uh, decayed a lot in value. That actually, I think there's an interesting analogy there to sort of other industries. Like I think about the in, in publishing, like the shift to the internet as far as the New York Times has been, you know, yes, their revenue is still lower than in their heyday, but in many respects, their influence and power, particularly relative to other newspapers, is dramatically higher in part because they were able to carry their brand from a previous era into this era. And, th- and that didn't necessarily work for others. And I, I, it sounds like you're saying a similar thing with these TV shows like Friends and Seinfeld are such cultural institutions that they are able to carry forward a, a sort of a salience that is not necessarily applicable to most shows in most libraries. Yeah, that's right. And I do, one thing I'm curious to monitor moving forward is 
Are any of the shows that are being produced today on streaming services going to have the same relevance, uh, you know, 15, 20 years from now, the way that like Friends or Seinfeld or The Simpsons will? And one reason I'm somewhat bearish on that is just that I think uh, one of the advantages for uh, those shows, uh, kind of like the New York Times, was that they established a huge um, audience and really strong emotional resonance at a time when the competition was just much less in, um, in quantity. And now when you look at the ratings for some of these new shows, and, and you can't get all of the data because you know Netflix and some of these services don't release it, but by all accounts, uh, the viewership for them on their initial airing is just much lower. And one of the things I've often thought about shows, movies, and all these cultural uh, properties in general is that they are sort of like mini social networks in a way because they are the basis for cultural conversation. And there are what I call kind of narrative network effects to these things. So, you know, the more people that watch Star Wars, the more sort of um, cultural return on investment I get from watching it because there are just so many more people I can talk to about it. Um, and, you know, Seinfeld and Friends and The Simpsons, I can reference those and a lot of people from my generation can um, understand what I'm talking about. But, you know, we just have so much more of a fragmented supply of content today and viewership that uh, it may be that the half-life shrinks for these things moving forward. This is a very interesting point that I've I've sort of wrestled with thinking about. Like there's a question, Does is Netflix hurt by the release all at once strategy because they don't get an opportunity to sort of participate in that sort of social validation and, and the sort of network effects that almost accrue to a show? And you saw this in the case like The Mandalorian, which was despite being a streaming show, was able to to get that sort of cultural valiance that that no netflix show even you know it has even even something like stranger things it's never had anything at least from my perspective that like the mandalorian did for example and and that's always been a question is that a good or a bad thing for netflix uh it, on the on the other hand if it's the case that the the that's going to be diminishing going forward maybe they're just sort of you know the proverbial skating where the puck is even if it's costing them at times in the short run yeah yeah well, it'll also be interesting in this, you know, in the midst of this pandemic and everything where a lot of productions um, have to close up for a while or maybe slow down, whether more media companies, uh, even like a Netflix, which which has experimented a bit with dropping shows weekly and things like that, um, you know, whether more companies do that just to stretch out the you know, the the time period of their content. I mean, with Disney Plus, I'm I'm happy to have have it and to have watched the Mandalorian, but I must admit that I haven't opened the Disney plus app recently because they haven't had any new programming. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, for my nieces, it's still fine because they can watch everything on there uh, a million times. So and at least, at least they're in market at a time when people are consuming streaming more than anyone else. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's more than you can say for some of their competitors. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's interesting about this, though, there's just a return to you mentioned the economics before yeah. what you're arguing, I think, is is perhaps a bit of a bearish argument for Netflix. And the reason is, is one reason why I've been optimistic about Netflix is presuming that the the library has residual value. And the idea being, if you're trying to reach your marginal customer and Netflix has, you know, 160 million or whatever it is subscribers, 
that next subscriber by definition is harder to acquire than the subscriber that came before. And so in the, in, 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 in startups that struggle with scale, uh, their customer acquisition costs go through the roof. And the idea with Netflix, the reason to be optimistic is that as the size of their library increases, the relative value of Netflix to that next subscriber is always greater than it was the day before because they have more content. However, it really matters what is the discount value that you place on that content. And what you're sort of suggesting is that that discount ought to be higher than maybe people think. Yeah, I have a piece that I haven't published on this topic because I had to, uh, I wrote it for somebody and had to embargo it for a while. But I really do think this is the crux of the argument of Netflix's terminal value as a company is what is the half-life of their content library. One of the interesting things about streaming media in general is that, you know, the internet and software, most of the disruption of that entire industry has been in sort of remapping the topology of distribution. And yes, software is used in production of TV and film to kind of um, do visual effects in different ways. But we haven't actually seen software really alter the economics of making that content. So whether you're Netflix or Disney Plus or HBO and Warner, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, it costs about the same um, dollars per minute to make a premium TV show or movie as your competitor. So no one necessarily has an advantage on that front. So what becomes interesting is on the other side of it is, well, how do you then monetize what essentially is kind of like a whole bunch of assets that cost about the same? And so Netflix, of course, as you've written about a lot, as everybody's uh, you know started to understand, is going for kind of the economies of scale advantage over its competitors. But the unit economics are determined a lot by what period they can amortize that content spent over. And so, you know, uh, people who may not have a business or accounting background, you know, amortization is just really, you know, what period of time you can spread your intangible assets over. And the reason that matters is if, if Netflix has to spend $20 billion a year to generate new content, but the amortization period is like a year, that's, that's much different than if they're able to spread that over five years or 10 years. And, you know, they've said that they do it show by show. They decide what the amortization schedule is based on their data. Um, it's not public, so we don't have a good sense for it. And the other factor here that matters is that I don't think any one of these companies completely controls that amortization or, or half-life period because it's context dependent. You're always competing with other forms of media and companies. And so you don't operate in a vacuum. Uh, so that is, I think, the, the crux of the question. It'll be really interesting to monitor kind of the amortization schedule of Netflix uh, moving forward. But, but also, I think for all other media companies, uh, it'll be very curious to see if they are you know, fighting against kind of a an overall zero sum game. It's the other well, the implicate the other implication of this too is to the extent this is a bear case for Netflix, it is a bull case for YouTube. And I you, you go back to publishing and you can make a similar argument where the first wave Web 1.0 was people taking advantage of distribution being free. And sort of Web 2.0 was taking advantage of the production of information also being free. And, and the reason why all of the monetization and publishing flowed to Google and Facebook, I think Facebook is probably the, the easiest to understand example, is Facebook was able to generate content for free 
which perfectly matched the ability to consume content for for free, which created a, 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 a flywheel of scale that made it by far the best advertising option. And you could see a similar play out in 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 this uh, video production, which is, you know, producing content. I talked to Matthew Ball with this on this podcast a couple weeks ago. Disney, to your point, Disney is spending a lot of money producing content and then on the back end taking advantage of free distribution. But there's a fundamental mismatch there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Disney is probably the most interesting foil to Netflix because um, they, you know, they're like, okay, Netflix has the economies of scale advantage. Uh, we're not going to compete necessarily on that. However, Disney has always had an interesting model in that they try to get a higher ROI on the content that they do spend on by focusing on very particular types of stories. Uh, I call these the difference between uh, inf uh, finite and infinite stories, kind of taking um, riffing off of James Carse's uh, finite and infinite games book. But, you know, Disney is like, look, we want to make a story that we can still tell like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, and people will still be watching this story. And, you know, there's this like, uh, I don't know, canonical story that uh, some people have said is a myth that Disney, Walt Disney had told um, everyone in his company to remake all of his stories every 10 years. And, and I, you know, I think people have said that he didn't really say that. But there is that basic idea of, well, look, if we're going to spend so much money making a story, we might as well try to extend the half-life of that as long as possible. Uh, and and that that is an art form. I think, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, Lion King and Beauty, Bees, Beauty and the Bees can be remade and still generate a billion dollars at the box office um, with, you know, some alteration, but not much to the core story is part of the, the strength of it. And, you know, I have nieces, you have kids, uh, any any parent who has uh, a child addicted to Frozen or something knows that they are spending kind of like, you know, in a, in a kind of an annuity-like fashion on those properties. And the revenue that Disney can make is uncapped. Whereas, you know, if you watch 90 hours of Netflix a week and I watch five, the amount of money they make off of um, us is capped. And, and that's tied to their business model. But But it's just, you know, one of the interesting differences between the two companies. This is this is such a great insight because if, if to, to this is where it almost ties into the the article that I want to write and and uh, mm -hmm. we'll see if I beat you out the door on on this one. <laughs> um, but the uh, I, I, it's so dangerous to talk about articles that you want to write, particularly if you write articles <laughs> on a daily basis uh, that it never comes. But yeah. uh, but this idea, if you think about it like that, the the half life of social media content is basically zero. Right. Yeah. Like the, the only value of a tweet in the past is to cancel someone. Right. Like that, that's <laughs> like the and yeah. honestly, the or, or to get, you know, I was right points uh, you know, <laughs> down the road. But right. basically the half life of, of most content is zero. And there and that fits into the powerful alignment that we're talking about of there being sort of zero production costs, zero consumption costs. And the value of all the content and information within that sort of system is inherently going to be zero. And Disney, I think, is a great point as a – I love this point as being a counter to it. I've made the point – talk about Disney, and I've been a Disney bull all the way through, even though a lot of people were really down on them. And the reason was to your – like content is super valuable it, just in general. Disney has the best content, and then they have such an entire – 
engine and universe to monetize that content to your point over someone's entire life. Like, like, like it, Mickey is an even better example than the ones you cited. Like Mickey, Mickey, you have Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. You have the, the old traditional Mickey cartoons. You have Mickey is still the biggest star at Disneyland even today. Like, like there's, there's a, uh, this idea of deep, deep, deep investments that to your point pay out over time. In this case, they do pay out on a zero marginal cost basis over time. Like it, it's a strategy that works. This raises the question: of, Is Netflix stuck in the middle? Right? Are they're not getting the the franchise type value that Disney is? They're spending a ton of money up front in a way that you know a YouTube is not. So is that going to be a fundamental problem in the long run? Yeah, I mean that that ultimately will be a question. We'll have to uh, we'll have to see how that evolves. What is sort of like the terminal subscriber base of a Netflix, and and how much does it cost them to sustain that base uh, across the entire globe over time? You know, I, I think they're uh, to be you know positive on their side. A couple good points. One is that you know they're increasingly looking at taking international content and spreading it across services, and so you know. On my Netflix, I can watch shows from you know Korea and the Middle East and China and all these things that they spent elsewhere. They're trying to get a higher return on it. A second is you know if you read their letters to shareholders and things, I, I think they do have an awareness that they compete in an environment. Uh, you know, obviously there's that famous quote about competing and losing more often to to Fortnite. Or, or however that quote goes, um, so I think they understand that they exist in that environment, but but it is a challenge because the you know the types of content they produce are are very expensive. On the Disney thing, one other point I'll bring up is uh, there's a it's a great Wikipedia page that lists the top fran like uh, entertainment franchises by revenue across their entire life uh, and ranks them all, and you'll notice that. One country that really punches above its weight on there is Japan. They have a oh, lot yeah, of franchises sure. that have generated a ton. And, and franchises and one of my, that are created from just thin air. <laughs> yeah. And one of my uh, points here, and I, I think this is one thing Japan does well and one thing Disney does well, is I think if you're going to amortize the cost of content over the life, uh, the entire life of a fan, you actually want to start when they're very young. And partially, I think this is because, and, and you can uh, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but based on my observation of my five nieces and nephews, is that when people are very young, they have really wide tastes. Uh, sometimes I, I'll, I'll call it that generously, though sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, my nieces have terrible taste in, in content. They'll watch <laughs> anything and they'll watch it forever. But what happens is I do think there is a period in your youth when this stuff imprints on you. And stays with you in a way that stuff you watch later in life just doesn't. You know, uh, a lot of people have said that they've done studies that show that your musical tastes are formed, you know, I, I think when you're young, like a teenager or something, and then they don't shift much after that. And so I do think that Disney and a lot of these Japanese franchises like Pokemon, uh, they tap into uh, a much younger audience. And then that stuff becomes just something they carry with them for life. Uh, and I think that's a challenge for, you know, somebody like maybe an HBO or somebody who focuses on content really for sort of, you know, like coastal elites in their late 20s and early 30s. Uh, it just doesn't know, scale. I, yeah, it's just like, you know, th there isn't going to be that nostalgia factor. I mean, I, I pretty much grew up in the age of Star Wars. It doesn't matter like how many Star Wars movies they make. I'm going to be there on opening night. Even no matter if I how bad they are. Yep. 
<laughs> and, and you know, like I'm just like I can't help it. Like I hear John Williams' score come on, and it really does bring back all these memories. Um, but I didn't grow up in the age of Pokemon, for example, so it doesn't have that same resonance for me. I, I would also add that I still remain bullish on Netflix too, and mm-hmm. I think the reason is. It, I, I th- actually, I was going back and reading uh, some old articles about streaming and whatnot. And when I went back to it was in 2017, it was something called The Great Unbundling. And there I put Netflix as fulfilling sort of like the storytelling drama role that TV used to play. And I realized now that that was wrong. What The role that Netflix plays is the couch potato, I just want something on in the background sort of role. And that is all about sort of acquiring large amounts of content. And th- so in some respects, YouTube is arguably the bigger threat than Disney to Netflix just because YouTube has even more content. But I suspect there's sort of a middle ground of relatively well-produced, uh, you know, somewhat middle-brow sort of content that you're just uh, – you're okay to have on all the time. And um, and, and, they're, and the other the advantage they have because of their subscriber base is their sort of relative purchasing power to everyone else is just so much better that, you know, everyone else I think is going to – I think a natural equilibrium is everyone selling their shows to Netflix. Like that's that's just where it makes sense for everyone to end up. And – this middle part of Netflix producing everything on their own is probably just a temporary one until they get back to the place where they're buying everyone else's content. That's probably a more stable space, stable spot. Yeah, that's a great point. I also do hope that this this sort of like macro shock uh, forces the streaming companies to think a little bit harder about innovating on their user interfaces. You know, I still think it's a little bit of a shame that most of them still present just kind of like the grid of icons. And, you know, everybody has probably had that experience of just paralysis where you're just like scrolling around. You're like, what do I watch? I don't, I don't know what to choose. And I often think, well, the old uh, linear TV, you know, just turn it on and something is playing is not necessarily the model to imitate. And the old TV guide was not the ideal, I do think there was something about, you know, when I used to turn on my TVs, you know, sports center would just be playing and then I would just kind of get sucked in or, you know, everybody has that experience of like one of the movies that you have on DVD and you never watch, but then suddenly it's like Shawshank Redemption is on or something. And then you just sit down and just start watching it. Um, I would love to see more innovation on interfaces to increase the value of your library and to make it more attractive or salient for viewers. That's really interesting because there there is a there's a cost that comes with forcing a decision on on consumers every time they open your app or open your service, mm-hmm. and there is value in just TV something's on, <laughs> and, yeah. and particularly and that's particularly interesting in the context of Netflix because if if I'm right and they're actually less about sort of highbrow stories and much more about filler, then the the importance of getting that 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 glide in even smoother and they've they've spent a lot of time on this for sure with the automatic playing previews and all that sort of stuff. But but they could probably I agree they could probably go even further. Another point I wanted to make about all of this is you know if you, if we're thinking about a media company struggling to extend the half life of the stuff they produce, one one general feeling I have is that this first era of the internet was a great period to take advantage of taking things that used to be synchronous and making them asynchronous. So. We once had to, you know, interrupt people with phone calls. And then we were like, oh, you know, why don't we just send text message or email? Why do we need to that person to answer us right at this moment? Uh, and then obviously with streaming media, it was like, why do you have to be home at 7 p.m. on a Thursday to watch, 
you know, whatever TV show? What if you could just do that on demand? And so again and again, you go category by category. I think the internet was like, okay, uh, let's go asynchronous and we're going to generate a ton of value. Uh, but, but I'm starting to sense that, you know, there are some returns now to, you know, there was something lost in just everything going asynchronous and that we'll start to see media companies experiment a little bit with trying to force some level of synchronicity again, just, just to help us regain that feeling of community. You know, sometimes when you're on Twitter, when something crazy is happening or there's a sporting event and everybody's watching it live, you do, you do have that feeling that I used to have when I was a kid when, um, you know, ABC would have its Sunday night movie of the week. And I would want to, uh, I would ask my dad if I could stay up and watch. And it would be like, you know, some James Bond movie that my dad and I had watched like 10 times already. But it was different watching it at that moment because I knew, you know, like 30 million Americans were also at home watching that exact moment with me. And, you know, in a period where media companies, you know, especially if you think about like sports and everything, which is all at a standstill right now are looking at, oh, okay, what do we do with this old content? I think some of it will be sort of creative experimentation with generating this, you know, synchronous, um, I don't know, synchronous uh, sense of community again. I think that's exactly right. And this the reason why I've been so extremely outspoken in arguing that sports is going to retain its value, which is, you know, there's another sort of one of those ongoing debates, like is Disney valuable? Is Netflix going to go bankrupt, et cetera? The other one is, uh, or sports rights going to plummet? And I think, no, I think the opposite direction because there, there is such social value that comes from, it's not just the, it, obviously the advertising plays into it in a part. It's, a, you know, everyone, you have to watch it live. But it's so socially meaningful to have something that everyone sort of bands around on and talks and talks about that the it's the it's the most obvious vehicle for that. And it, again, this, this takes me back, although, to something like The Mandalorian, you know, it, it's it was so striking how that became a cultural moment kind of overnight. And obviously, drafting on Star Wars and Baby Yoda, you know, gave it a massive head start. But it's very curious to think about you know, what lessons there are for that broadly. And you could, for Disney, for example, it, I think it reemphasizes the importance of taking the tentpole approach, taking the long-term approach, thinking we're going to pay this off in our theme parks over time. We're going to pay this off in merchandise over time, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, whereas for Netflix, and maybe that will sort of accelerate their push in the opposite direction because sort of like realizing we can't compete with that. So we're going to double down on, 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 on what we're good at. Yeah. I, I think, look, if you were a Netflix and you know, their business model is a fixed price subscription per month. If you were to say, Hey, we want to turn stranger things into the Mandalorian, you know, the economics don't quite work out because if you look at what Disney spends on licensing and merchandise and their theme parks and everything that goes around, really, you know, imprinting this stuff um, in your soul. The reason that works is that the economics of that are are paid back through the, you know, marginal um, revenue that comes from the ticket to Disneyland and all the food you buy there and then the action figures and everything like that. Where, whereas Netflix is only going to make whatever $13 per month of gross revenue off of me per month, no matter what, um, unless they, they shift their business model. Well, the other thing is interesting in the context of movies. I've been very sort of intrigued by Netflix's move into movies. I haven't completely understood it. I think there's an aspect where it's easy, easier to market around movies. So maybe it's a customer acquisition strategy. 
but it feels like movies by virtue of being a one-time event are in some respects not a great fit for for the I mean I guess having a lot of movies in the library is good for if you're filling time so maybe that's sort of the angle on it but this is arguing an argument for and maybe this streaming thing will happen we saw it happen with Universal this week releasing movies sort of direct to rent I imagine if Disney you know that you know comes out with a film you have to one be a subscriber to Disney plus so that's part of it but then two you pay an additional ten dollars or whatever to watch it right away and now they create a bird box type movement. But instead of it being about some movie that no one actually cares about, the only reason they watched it is because it came out at the same time. Now it's about a, a Disney princess movie or it's about a Pixar movie. And, you know, the cultural impact could be seismic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think there is a, there's a way in which Disney understands that they will spend, you know, a disproportionately high amount on their IP to try to break through uh, and sort of like imprint it on your soul in a way. Whereas, you know, for other companies to think about like taking something they already spent to make and then spending a, a huge chunk more on top of that um, just seems like highly risky. Whereas Disney is like, well, this is just what we've always done. And so our company is sort of like built around that. And and there is a way in which, you know, emotionally, I think as a company and culturally, you have to have the stomach for certain types of business models and, and some cultures just aren't like suited for repeatedly taking that type of risk. Well, but, but that's what's so interesting about this crisis is if people are actually going to be at home for months or, or weeks at a minimum, like it, it, there's an opportunity for like trends that would have taken 10 years to like be dramatically accelerated. And I think the movie release one could potentially be a big one. And, you know, you think about it, I think people got stuck also thinking you have to be like Netflix like you have to charge $10 a month, but you just sort of articulated in passing, that's what fits with the Netflix model. But there are real downsides to it, particularly for a company like Disney, because you're not maximizing your revenue per customer. And Disney's upfront investment in content is all about maximizing your revenue per customer over their entire life. So if you think about that and you back that into the business model, well, yes, having a base price per month for the library, but then charging on top of that for new releases, for things along those lines, that actually is a very natural accompaniment to their model. And the great, this is, sorry, this is, I'm just thinking about this. I'm getting more ideas. But you talked about how companies haven't used software or whatever to sort of lower their production costs. The costs are still the same, right? But there's other areas you can innovate too, including on your business model. And the fact that you can, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, where you charge different different prices for different things. Um <laughs> price discrimination, right? Uh, but obviously, price discrimination can go to a negative way, but it can also go in a positive way, whether it be like temporal based or things along those lines. And dis- and being digital lets you do that to a far greater extent than if you're going via movie theater or v- via third party. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, two points on that that you just brought up, which I want to emphasize. One is the uh, you know, this, there's a concept in economics of nominal rigidity, which are like prices are just kind of sticky, um, despite the fact that they shouldn't be. Um, I often think that applies in a lot of fields, um, including sort of like uh, what I call format or behavioral rigidity. And you're right that often it takes something like a macro shock, like a pandemic like this, to just shake people out of just things that they're used to doing. For example, you know, not releasing day and date 
on streaming for theatrical releases may be one of those things where studios are just like, well, look, a couple theater chains went under now. So, you know, I'm no longer scared of them and I am going to just put this stuff out day and date. Uh, that could be one of those. The second thing is, yes, I think, you know, it, it's always about matching your um, pricing and everything to your business model and your competitive advantage. So trying to match Netflix by doing being another low price subscription doesn't make sense because they have the economies of scale advantage. So that's absolutely the optimum strategy that they should pursue. But for competitors, it's never a good idea to you know not have that advantage and then just copy the the leading incumbent there. So uh, you know. I think we can learn a lot and we should have another conversation about this another time. But if you look at video games, what a great business, right? The best customers like, spend so much money um, with video games, but they also derive an equally great amount of like pleasure or return from that spend. Um, and Disney's similar that way, right? You know, I spend a ton on frozen gifts for my nieces, but you know, you they're like super excited about it. They love that stuff. And so yep. um, that's the ideal business where your best customers spend the most with you and they also get the best enjoyment out of it. Well, you, we could, as I predicted, we could definitely go on for ages about this. Let's, let, let's wrap it up there. I think we, we will limit this to the half-life of content, even though we, we were straining at, the, at our restraints by the end there. <laughs> and uh, I would love to have you on again sometime in the future. Thanks for having me. The daily update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you would like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. Thanks for being a subscriber and have a great day.